Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hey, I want to give you all a quick update. Um, We are in the middle of this uh, capital campaign. We're calling the home campaign. And I want to give you just three or four minutes, kind of update each week, tell you what's going on, tell you some of the heart behind this. And as you think about the home home campaign, it really is the goal of this is to provide our church with a permanent home so that we can invite our city to come experience a deep, meaningful life in Christ alongside us. And so that's the heartbeat behind it. But one of the things that a capital campaign like this ought to do is it ought to really re-energize us and remind us of kind of our core values and some of the stuff that's, uh, that's really essential to our mission. And one of the things that's been on my heart and been on the heart of our staff as we've thought about this and talked about this over the last several weeks is just that uh, just this desire to see our passion and our hearts reignited for the lost in our city. Uh, Christ came to seek and to save the lost. And, and we're just praying that the, that the home campaign would re-energize our, and stir our hearts for the people in our city that need to meet Jesus. Those who don't know him and those that are, that are wandering through this crazy season of life that we're all in uh, without a savior. And so our heartbeat is that, Uh, that really God would move people in our church to take personal initiative to build relationships with people in our city that need to know Jesus. And uh, Christ himself said, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. And that implies that if we're authentically following Jesus, there's going to be a desire and a hunger in our part to reach people for Jesus. And so uh, we would want to see that lived out in life for our church. And um, as we think about that, I just... It's, it's one thing when you start talking about a building just to potentially think that maybe you could turn inward and maybe that could be a, man, that'd be a great to have a place where we could be really comfortable and where we could be really set kind of personally. But I don't want you to hear that when we start talking about a home. A home is, is a launching pad for us for mission. A home is a place that we wanna be able to invite people into. And uh, we believe that having a building is actually gonna help us reach the lost more effectively in our city. And so that's part of the heartbeat behind what we wanna be about is we wanna see a significant group of people with compassion and action reaching out to those around us in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools. And we wanna see uh, really just that heartbeat kind of restored, renewed, uh, grown and expanded within uh, within the life of our church. And so uh, that's one of the things that we think this is going to do for us and that we really want to lean into. That's a truism in all of life that doing something new or achieving something great takes sacrifice, right? Um, but it really does. I think um, I was thinking of a quote as I was thinking about this this week. Andy Stanley said, a vision worth pursuing will demand sacrifice and risk. You will be called upon to give up an actual good for the potential best. So when you, when you reach for a vision or something that's out there, something new, when you want to do something new, you have to give up what's known in order to take hold of something that's potentially better. And that's what we're doing with this home campaign is we're going to trust that the Lord is going to work through this process to, to bring us together, to re-energize us, but also to reinvigorate our, our vision and our mission for our city. And that, uh, let me just pray for us to that end. But as we do, um, man, can I just... Can I just remind us that the eternal salvation of men and women is, is a cause worth sacrificing for? Like if there's a cause worth risking for, the eternity of the souls of men and women in our city surely is worthy of sacrifice.
So let's pray and ask the Lord to, to give us a home so that we can introduce more people to Jesus. Heavenly Father, we do come to you and we know that you are the God who runs after the one. You are the father who leaps off the porch to welcome the prodigal home. You're the father that goes out to entreat the religious older brother to come in to celebrate. Father, it's your heart beats for the people of this world. And so, Father, we want our heart to beat for the people of this world. Father, would you give us a hunger to see the lost found, to see people meet Jesus for the first time? Father, would you, would you just take the, the scales off our eyes that we might see the world as you see it? Father, would you, would you break through the calluses in our hearts that we might have soft hearts for the people around us, that we might have compassion for them who are lost like sheep without a shepherd? Father, just as Jesus did. And Father, would you mobilize us to go to them, to initiate, to, uh, to love well and demonstrate the love of Christ, but also to declare the love of Christ that's available in his grace and in the gospel. Father, we pray all this for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, we are in 2 Samuel, and so as we get into the Word, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2, and we're continuing this series on the life of David. And we've got a long way to go, and we're going to cover a lot of ground today. We're going chapters 2 through 5, which those of you that know me, that may make you nervous, but we're going to get there, so just hang in there. But these, these chapters really present this kind of gritty, raw, earthy, uh, a little bit nasty, to be honest, kind of uh, struggle of people trying to figure out how to live their lives under the rule of God. And, and the Bible just doesn't, doesn't sugarcoat the messiness of our lives, does it? And we're going to see that, man, it just kind of is all out there in these chapters. And for me, that's good news for us in 2020, because I look at our world and it's a pretty messy place. And so the fact that God has not abandoned places where there's messes uh, is a good thing for us. But God's not shocked by the turmoil and the trial of our lives. He sees it all. And friends, I want to encourage you that God is working out his plans in, in 10,000 different little ways, even when we look and think, man, it looks like this whole thing's gone to pot, and we're not sure that, uh, that God's even aware of what's going on, but he, does, he is, and he's still at work, and his plans are not going to be deterred. Um, he's going to continue to do his will. Uh, but last week in chapter one, we saw that King Saul had died. And so in that, it seemed as though the stage might finally be set for David to step into the throne. This, this promise that, that David had, that he was one day going to be king, that he was going to rule over Israel. He'd waited 13 long years for that day to come. It looked like Saul had passed. And this was going to finally, uh, he was gonna be able to finally take over. But oftentimes plans don't work out as smoothly as, as we want them to. Can I get an amen on that? Any of you relate to that in your life? Like you've got plans and they don't always go exactly the way that you think they're going to. But what we see here is God has spoken about what is going to happen, but things don't necessarily progress on David's timeline and they don't necessarily go in a straight line in that direction. You see, what we're gonna see in these chapters is really what we see in all of humanity. Is there's this, there's this storyline that repeats itself over and over and over throughout the Bible. And honestly, uh, one guy said, if you, if you took the Bible and you turned it in as an English assignment, your, your teacher would probably give you an F for redundancy because it just repeats this itself over and over and over. Uh, this is the storyline that you're gonna find really from beginning to end throughout the Bible, but you're gonna see it over and over in these chapters as well. And it's that God has a plan and, he's put, and it puts man on the right course, but man resists and rebels against God. A man creates pain uh, for himself and for others and makes a mess of things. Man uh, suffers because of that, and then God comes to the rescue. 
And that's the, that's the pattern you just see over and over and over in, uh, in the scriptures. And you're gonna see this and I'm really giving away the entire sermon. So uh, that's pretty much all I got to say today. Uh, you, could, you can leave now and go home. We are gonna do communion and other stuff later that's worth sticking around for. But, uh, but that's the storyline of the Bible. It's the storyline of what we see here. It's, it's the, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Um, we, we make messes and God comes to the rescue. Uh, that's the pattern. That's what we're going to see here. So as we get into 2 Samuel 2, um, let's dive in and we're going uh, to see what we can learn together about these two truths. The fact that we create messes and God rescues us over and over and over. It says, after this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the son or the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up the men who were with him and everyone with his own household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, uh, Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because of this thing that you have done. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah, Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, uh, the son of Saul, and made him and brought him over Menahem. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. In that time that David was king over Hebron and the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So here we see this story beginning to unfold. And, and I love how it starts off in verse one. It starts off at the very beginning. And, and David says that David inquired of the Lord. David is, is moving to this place where he gets to be king. And the very first thing that we have recorded that he did was he stopped and he sought the Lord. He stopped and he asked for help. I wonder how much better we'd all be if we lived that way, right? Like dads and moms at home. How much better would it be if we stopped and asked for the Lord's help and asked him what he wanted us to do? Uh, when we're at the office and we're facing that difficult trial, uh, when we're at school, kids and students, and, uh, and things are not going our way, what would it, how much better off would we be if we just stopped and said, Lord, could you help me out here? I think, I think we'd be a lot better off. And David didn't assume his, his instincts were right. He was, he was humble. And so he stopped and he asked for help. Um, and he said, Lord, where, where would you have me, what would you have me do and where would you have me go? And the Lord gave him instruction. So then David uh, followed what it is he said he wanted to do, or the Lord wanted him to do. Now you see, it's important to know, I think for us, is that David had been on the right path and he'd been on the right path for a long time, but David didn't presume that he was always gonna stay on the right path. David recognized that he needed the Lord's help each moment of each day in order to stay, to keep from erring or to veer from veering off course. And so he continually came back to the Lord. And, uh, 
it, it's interesting maybe as I think about where David would be in this, in this moment. Now, he's waited 13 years. Uh, if you think back to 1 Samuel, we talked about this some last, year, uh, last week. But David, 13 years, has wandered oftentimes in the wilderness, sleeping in caves, running away from Saul. He's lived in exile uh, in, in, with, with the Philistines, away from his own people. And in the midst of that, he finally gets this moment where Saul's now gone and David gets to step in and you think he's gonna get to become king. And then we read here, how long was it before he gets to be king over all Israel. It was another seven and a half years. See, he comes and he asks the Lord and the Lord didn't say, David, it's time. Go to Jerusalem. All of Israel is gonna come. They're all gonna bow down to you as king. They're all gonna worship you and everything's gonna be right now. What he says is, why don't you go on up to Hebron? And the, the people of Hebron come and they, they anoint David as king, but only king over this one tribe. So of the 12 tribes of Israel, David gets to be king after 13 years of waiting of one. That's a small victory, isn't it? Do you ever have difficulty with small victories? Like you just, you want, you want the big dog victory and God gives you a small victory and you have a hard time rejoicing in that. But I think when I, when I look at what David is going through here, I think it would have been really tempting for him to be discouraged by this small victory. 13 years, Lord, I've waited. I've been faithful. I've done the right things. I've shown up time and time again to you. And yet, now you're not gonna follow through on the promise you gave me. You're gonna make me wait another seven and a half years. Waiting, waiting is hard. Any of you love waiting? No, waiting is just difficult. I don't like to wait for lunch, much less wait 13 years for something, right? Like, I, I, you know, that we, we go through fast food and we get upset if it's like, not like this at the drive-through window. If, if it's not Chick-fil-A level of excellence in terms of productivity and getting me my food on time with a smile, I get pretty upset. I don't wanna wait 13 years. And so if I can get upset about that, think about David getting upset with the Lord for not following through on the promise that he gave him. And yet David stays faithful. One guy said this about waiting. Ray Orland said, waiting on the Lord is not like resting in a hammock with a glass of iced tea. It's more like holding a plank position until your coach tells you you're done. Um, isn't that true? That's the way it is. Um, sometimes waiting is not just uh, meant to be tortured. It's meant to produce something good in us. And uh, Paul Tripp says this, from the perspective of the gospel, waiting is never just about getting what you've been waiting for, but more importantly, it's about the good changes in you that God produces through the wait. And the waiting for David is producing something good, but it's, he's gonna have to continue to wait. So that's why in verse eight, you notice what it says, the, the, the scene shifts. So you get this, this kind of quick run where David becomes king of Judah, and then you get to verse eight and it says, but Abner. And it, and it shifts and there's a, that, that but is meant to say, but there's gonna be a problem here. There's gonna be a difficulty to hear. And Abner's, he's a, he's a cousin of Saul. And if, if you look really at the history of the world, what happens oftentimes is you have one king that's removed is uh, there, there's this kind of free for all for who's gonna become king in his, in his stead or in his place. And so what happens uh, oftentimes in history is one of the military commanders at that time looks for a kind of a weak weak candidate and throws him on the throne and kind of makes him a puppet king. And that's what happens is he goes to Ishbosheth, who's one of Saul's sons and kind of a weak son. And he says, Ishbosheth, I got this great idea. Why don't you be king over the rest of Israel? David's got Judah. You'll be king over everyone else. And I'll make sure that everything's okay. I got your back. And so Abner's really driving this thing. He's really in control. Um, but, but what we're going to see a little bit later is Abner actually knows that the Lord has spoken clearly that David's supposed to be king. And he's, he's just being rebellious. 
He's resisting the will of the Lord. He's fighting against the plans of God. And this really sets up in this passage, two different, uh, kind of as you get into chapter two, it sets up two different paths. You've got the path of uh, the way of Saul and the path of the way of David. And so Abner is, and, and many of uh, the kind of the, the inhabitants or, or the, the descendants of Saul are gonna continue to push things kind of as Saul did. They're, they're gonna be, and, and let me just kind of explain kind of what I mean by this way of Saul. The way of Saul's a way of human, uh, human ambition. It's personal maneuvering. Uh, you may remember in 1 Samuel, the, the nation came and said, we would like to have a king like all the other nations. And so they went and picked the guy that was a head taller than everyone else, Saul, and said, let's make him king. And so Saul becomes king because they wanted to be impressive in their human accomplishment. And so that's the way of Saul. But there's also another way, the way of David. Way of David is dependence on God. The way of David is a way of faith. The way of David is a way of stopping and asking the Lord for help. The way of David is, uh, is godly ambition. It's uh, what it was it that God said when he looked for David. He says, I'm looking for a man, after, a man with God's own heart. And so, so it, rather than it being a king like all the other nations, it's a man after God's own heart. Man looks on the outside, 1 Samuel said, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, a kingdom established with God's guidance versus a kingdom established by man's initiative. That's the difference of what we're, what we're intended to see here. And the writer does something really interesting. You notice that the, the section on David takes the first four verses of chapter two. The section on Abner begins uh, from verses eight through 11. And then in the middle, you've got this little section of this group called Jabesh Gilead. And you don't really know why he's there. Let me tell you what the writer's doing. The writer's setting this up on purpose. He's saying, look, there's a way of David and there's a way of Saul. And in the middle, there's this group and you have to decide and they have to decide which way they're gonna go. And so he sets up this kind of tension that he wants you to get. And the, the people of Jabesh Gilead have a decision to make on how they're gonna live. Are they gonna trust God's plan and go with David? Now, bear in mind, David's king over what? One little tribe. So does David look like he's gonna be on the winning side of this thing? No, he looks like he's on the weak side. He looks like he's on the outs. He looks like he's just this kind of side thing over there. And Jabesh Gilead is, uh, is aware of where David is. And David comes to them and he winsomely asks them to come and follow him. He actually acknowledges that he's going to soon be in power. He says, now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. I will do good to you because of the good that you have done. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong. Be valiant. Saul, your king is dead and Judah has made me king. And he's implying that I'm gonna be ruler over everyone and I'm inviting you to come now and be a part of my kingdom. And so they've got this choice to make. Are they gonna go with David or are they gonna go with Abner and, and walk in the way of Saul? Friends, that's really the decision we all have to make too, isn't it? Any of you remember the Choose Your Own Adventures books? I used to love the Choose Your Own Adventure books when, you're, when I was a kid and you read through and you get to the end of one section and there'd be a question, you know, what do you wanna do? And then you'd look and you'd decide what you wanted to do and it would tell you based on your decision, turn to this page or turn to another page. And whatever you chose, you'd flip to that page and you'd figure out how it would work out. That's really what life is like for the Jabesh Gileadites. It's also what life's like for us. When we come to these points where we have to decide, and which, how am I gonna live? Am I gonna walk in the way of Saul or am I gonna walk in the way of David? And how we, make the, how we choose in the middle of our adventure really dictates the outcome of the story of our lives. And it's going to be that way for these guys too. Now, and there's some great reading you may want to go back and do in chapters two through four here. Uh, I'm not going to have time to do that um, for the sake of it, but and it, it would make a great movie scene uh, if you want to do it. It starts off chapter two, you get the, the next section here in chapter two, you actually get the, the, this battle that, that comes and Abner 
uh, kind of goes to pick a fight and he goes and it says he, he went out, meaning like he went out to war and he shows up at the pool, uh, pool of Gibeon. And as he does, he kind of starts this friendly wager with Joab. So David's commander, the commander of David's army, Joab and Abner, the commander of Ishbosheth's army are there. And he kind of picks this fight and says, hey, why don't you send out your 12 best dudes and I'll send out my 12 best dudes and we'll have a little hand-to-hand combat. And as they do, what happens um, is kind of what you'd expect. Things escalate, things, uh, temperatures flare. Uh, they end up taking, uh, actually all 12 kill one another. And then uh, a full-scale battle erupts out of that. And in that battle, you're gonna have 360 of Abner's men killed, 20 of, uh, of David's men that are killed. And as a part of that, David's three nephews, Azahel, Joab, and Abishai are going to pursue Abner and chase him down in order to, to try and kill him. And Azahel, uh, you find out it says he, he's as fast as a gazelle. So this is apparently a dude with some legs that could move. And so he's hauling after Abner and Abner's yelling back, you know, hey, back off, stay away, don't come. You know, let's just call, let's call it quits. And he refuses. And as he continues to run after him, eventually Abner, it says, sticks his spear in the ground and Azahel runs right onto it and impales him. And so he's left for dead there. And so you have Joab and Abishai and his brothers are gonna be angry at Abner Hang on to that because we're gonna come back to that in just a minute. Uh, but there's a reason why that um, story is mentioned here. So that's chapter two, happy stuff in the life of David, right? Uh, let's go to chapter three and see, see if things get a little bit better. Uh, chapter three is really laid out clearly. In, ch- in verse one, it says, uh, there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David and David grew stronger and stronger and the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And then skipping down to verse six. And while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So Abner, this uh, guy who put Ishbosheth on the throne as this puppet king, Abner's still calling the shots. He's pulling the strings and doing everything behind the scenes. There's civil war between Judah and the other tribes of Israel. And so this battle's been going on for years. And as it does, uh, Abner's making himself stronger and stronger. He's making a play for the throne. He actually goes in and he sleeps with one of Saul's concubines, which in that culture meant um, I'm taking the place of the king in this very intimate personal matter. And it's, it's a way in which he's, you actually stake a claim for the, that king's throne. He's saying, if I, if I can take her, then I can take your throne. And um, it's a very, very uh, sinful um, way of operating a, a power play, but that's what Abner's doing. And he, Ishbosheth gets a little upset about that. And so he says, hey, you can't have my throne. You can, you can pull the strings behind the scenes, but you're not gonna take me out in public. And so there becomes this battle. Immediately, Abner um, flips sides and he's gonna actually switch his allegiance from the house of Saul over to the house of David. In uh, verse nine, uh, Abner is challenging Ishbosheth and he says, may God do so to me and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Now, these are pivotal verses to understand really everything that's happening. And I know we've got a lot of history working here and some of you didn't know you're gonna get a history lesson today, but, uh, but there's so much about the way the world works and um, that, that comes into play here. And I think it's important for us to understand uh, what's transpiring here as well. Friends, what does Abner get right in that statement? Um, if I get that verse back up on the screen. Um, what does Abner get right there? He acknowledges that God promised to David the throne right? So Abner understands that God, God has anointed David, that God's called David to be the ruler over all of Israel. He's known that. What that means for Abner is he's been disobedient for 15 years. 
The means for Abner is for 15 years, he's flaunted and gone against the will of God and against God's plans and everything he did. So he gets that right here by acknowledging the truth that God had, God had anointed David. What does he get wrong? He thinks he's the one that's gonna help bring it about. Notice what he says. If, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to do for him. Um, how arrogant is that to think that he's going to be the one that accomplishes what God has apparently not been able to do for 15 years? I mean, he acknowledges that he's, that he's wrong and he acknowledges that, he, that he's been acting wrong, but now he's gonna switch sides and he's playing this against, against Ishbosheth in order to make a power play. So friends, let me, let me ask you a question. Um, when, do you ever see men like this in our world who switch allegiances based on what's best for them? who claim to believe what God has said in order to, to get something done for them. Beware of men like Abner. No matter how confident they are, no matter how, uh, how tight their plans may sound, no matter how self-assured they may be, um, if they flout God's law, then they're headed for trouble. And what we see here is Abner does what's good for Abner. Um, everyone becomes a theologian whenever they want God on their side. Right? One of the dangerous things about religious groups is that everyone can claim to have God on their side right? And so that can be, uh, that, that can be a, a dangerous place. Uh, one commentator says, Abner only quotes scripture when it supports a pro-Abner move. And he goes on and says, it's possible to know the truth and not embrace the truth, to quote the truth and not submit to the truth, to hold to the truth and yet assault the truth. So Abner's going to do what's good for Abner. And I, I recognize in this day of, of our heated politics in an election year um, that this could feel like i set this up. I truly didn't. Uh, this is where we came in the text and it's where we are. And, and I don't mean any of this as a political statement. I'm just saying, friends, as we come to the truth, let's trust the Lord. Let's walk with the Lord. Let's, let's look at the scriptures and let's trust, let's trust him. But let's also know that, that there's going to be people from all sides that are going to try to take verses and they're going to use them to make, their own, to make their own ends. And we need to be wise and understand who it is that we truly are seeking and that we're truly trusting, putting our trust in. So Abner switches sides from Ishbosheth to uh, to David, and and when Abner comes to David, he says, um, uh, you know, don't you know David was great, grateful when Abner shows up? And Abner shows up and says, "Hey, I'm here to help you." And you know, for David, you're kind of going, "Ah, let's see how this how this plays out." But David kind of sees what he's up to, and he's smart. He's he actually is trying to bring peace and unity to the land. And so David uh, brings Abner together and he, he says, he gives him safe passage. He gives him uh, a kind of safe conduct in the, in the land so that Abner's free to come and go. Now what happens is Joab shows up and Joab's upset uh, that, that David has brought this rival. So you've got the, the commander of Saul's army, now the commander of David's army, who's gonna become the commander of the future kingdom. Uh, and so Joab also, remember Joab, who Joab's brother was? Azahel, the man that was impaled by whom? Abner. Well, Joab doesn't like the fact that David's welcomed Abner in. And so Joab actually commits treachery and goes and ambushes uh, Abner and takes his life. And so now you've got more blood on their hands. Don't you, now, so that gets us to chapter three. Uh, don't, don't you, don't you uh, aren't you jealous of David as a leader? Like leadership looks really fun, doesn't it? You get, you, get to, you get to deal with all this kind of stuff. Uh, you look at what David's been able to do. So we get to chapter four. You think they're gonna throw a picnic, play some cornhole and have a meal together? 
Yeah, we're not, we're not there yet. Um, so with Abner gone, Ishbosheth and Israel get nervous. Uh, there's kind of this vacuum of power that takes place there. And there's these two guerrilla leaders uh, that, that had been a part of uh, Saul's army in the past that, um, that come and, and they decide to make a play. And so um, they, they immediately um, go and break into, uh, into Ishbosheth's house and they actually take his life. Um, they um, kill him while he's asleep and take his life. And they cut off his head and they actually bring it to David. So let's look at 2 Samuel 4. And I wanna read just a section here and kind of see what happens when these guys show up and bring it to David. It says, and they said to David, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Banah, his brother, the sons of Remnon the Barathite, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me that Saul was dead and brought, thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for that good news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy them from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed him and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them outside at the pool of Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Notice verse eight, these guys come. Uh, it's a violent scene here, right? These guys come and they bring the, the head of Ishbosheth and just bring it into David. And um, you notice what it is they say. Um, they, they say that the Lord, the Lord gave us the head of Ishbosheth for you. The, the Lord has avenged you. That, that all these years you didn't kill Saul, all these years you waited to avenge yourself for Saul. Well, we, we took care of that for you, David. We went ahead and avenged you from Saul's family. We took him and we brought his head to you and presented it to you. Uh, don't you love that everyone gets theological whenever they want, whenever they want a God on their side? You know, these guys have just gone committed murder because they're afraid that this guy's going out and we want to get on the winning team. And so they run and do, commit this act of murder and then they blame it on the Lord. He gets blamed for all kinds of stuff. You know, they, they notice they pretend to honor David though. Look, David, look what we've done for you. They pretend to honor justice. You know, look, righteousness has been done. What, all the evil that they've done has now been, uh, vengeance has now been executed upon them. They pretend to honor the Lord in the way they behaved. And yet they, they did not. Um, notice David's reply though. David, I love where he goes. It says, as the Lord lives. See, what he knows is that, that ultimately we answer, we answer to the Lord. He says, as the Lord lives. Um, and he's not just asserting his faith in the Lord, but his belief that God is alive, that God's active, that God's at work, even in this messy situation, that God's not absent, but that God is very much actively working within all of this. And so he testifies that the Lord then rescued him and redeemed him out of every adversity. He says, as the Lord lives, Yahweh, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. What he's saying is, look, I look back at the last... 15 years of everything I've gone through and God showed up time and time again. There was one mess after another that man had created and God showed up and he rescued me, redeemed me out of every adversity, out of every trial, out of every difficulty and mess that there was. God never abandoned me. He was always present. He was always aware. He saw everything I was going through and he showed up time and time again to rescue my life out of every adversity. In all these years, David had never, never taken matters into his own hands, had he? See, he, he knew that God had said, one day you will be king. But he, ref, he refused to take vengeance against Saul. 
He refused to seek retribution against Saul. He refused to take the throne for himself all those years. And David had waited and waited and waited. And if these two thought they were gonna be rewarded for the trophy of, of what they brought him, uh, they found something a little bit different, didn't they? See, David had to finally just tell people, look, the way of Saul is not okay. The, the way of human ambition, the way of human wisdom, the way of, uh, of us uh, manipulating situations and, and, and asking God to bless our sinful ways is not okay. There's a new sheriff in town and we're not gonna do business this way anymore. And so David executes justice in order to let them know that this is not the way that we're going to, that we're gonna, that we're gonna act within this kingdom. He wanted to see a new day, new day happen. Friends, do you see a pattern that runs, out through this, runs throughout this whole section? that over and over again, men just create messes and God has to show up and, and make it right. Uh, once again, David's waited on the Lord. He's trusted the Lord's time. He's refused to take things into his own hands, but it wasn't easy. At every turn, someone was there to try to get David to expedite a different plan, wasn't it? At every every turn, time David turned around, there was someone that wanted to interfere with David's faithful waiting on the Lord. And so David had to stand, stand strong. If he was gonna rise, he wanted to rise at the Lord's hand. He wasn't gonna rise by his own killing of Saul. He wasn't gonna rise uh, by the Amalekite who, killed, who took Saul's life. He didn't wanna rise at the hands of, of an Abner or Joab. He didn't wanna rise at the hands of these men who, who took Ishbosheth's life. He was not gonna allow the, the ends to justify the means. He wanted to stay faithful to the Lord. And so as he did, um, eventually things began to turn. Friends, when, when God has dec decreed a kingdom to come, no Saul or Abner or Joab can deter its arrival. I want us to look at chapter five. Things finally begin to turn. Chapter five, David uh, actually gets to, at the end of this seven and a half years now, he's waited uh, 20 years to get to this point, but he finally gets to the day where he gets to, uh, where he gets to be king over all of Israel. It says, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh, in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in. The Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd over my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came and made him king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. So David finally gets to be king. And this is the beautiful uh, thing about this passage is you see all the mess it took to get there, but the day finally comes. And that day, all Israel shows up. You notice what they said of David. They said, look, you're bone and flesh of ours, meaning you're one of us. Um, you, you care for us. He, he says, even under Saul, it was you who led us out in, in, in battle and you who took care of us. So you're, you're one of us. You lead us. And, and, and it also says that in uh, verse two, God spoke and told us that you are the one to care for us like a shepherd. Just like you used to care for those sheep, you're gonna care for us as a nation. So they finally came to the point. Friends, why do we wait so long to come around to God's plan? Think of how much pain has happened in those 20 years. How many lives were lost? How many struggles? How many, how many relationships were broken? How many things were, uh, were, were that, that could have been avoided if they'd only come earlier? You know, there was, there was no logical or rational reason for them to reject David as king, was there? I mean, what had, ever David, what had David ever done to cause them to reject? He had faithfully been faithful to the Lord. Um, he, he had gone out and slain the giant Goliath when no one else would. Uh, he had led them out in battle faithfully and, uh, and executed justice on their behalf. 
Um, he had been faithful to walk with the Lord, to lead them in worship. He had, uh, he, he had been faithful to, uh, to King Saul. There was never a reason for them to reject him, and yet they continue to reject him. And so do you know another Jewish king who has come from, that's a descendant of David, who was bone and flesh like we are, was one of us, who was willing to lead, to go out into battle for us, even willing to lay down his life for us, and one who was rejected by men for no logical reason at all. Friends, we, we reject Jesus and his plans and his will all the time, but there's no logical reason for us to do so. I mean, he's done nothing but good for us. Um, and if we, if we trust him, one day we'll get to experience what David experienced. I love the fact that God's plans never falter. I love the fact that God's uh, plans, even in the midst of our messes, always come to fruition. I want to read one other passage in First Chronicles that really captures the joy of this moment for the nation of Israel and really what, uh, what came to pass for David when they got to celebrate. And this is, I love the way this parallel passage uh, describes it. It says, now, <clears throat> all these, meaning all David's mighty men, all these men of war arrayed in battle order came to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of a single mind to make David king. And they were there with David for three days, eating and drinking, for the brothers had made preparation for them. And also their relatives from as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali came bringing food on donkeys and on camels and on mules and on oxen, abundant provisions of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raisins, wine and oil, oxen and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. And isn't that good? Don't you want to be a part of a party like that? There was joy indeed in Israel. It took 20 years. Imagine for David the weight and what it would be like to finally experience that. Friends, when they finally came around to God's plan, there was joy in the land. That's what happens when we, when we trust the Lord, that he, he brings joy. That it may not be fast, it may not be as quickly as we want it, but joy always comes, and so we can trust him. And friends, for those who walk in the way of David, let's wait on the Lord. Let's trust him. Let's count on him and depend on him that his plans and promises will come to pass. And one day we will have joy indeed as well. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that we have life under your care. That in a messy world, Father, your plans and your promises will never be thwarted. Father, you are undeterred. Father, your will marches throughout history to a day when we will celebrate a king who has come, where every knee will bow before him. Father, where, where we will celebrate and there will be joy indeed, and we will be un, unfettered in our joy. Father, for the, the messes in that day will be, will be no more. Father, we long for the day. Until then, help us to wait. Help us to be faithful. Help us to trust you. Help us to look to your promises and trust that your, your way is best. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.